Hello, and welcome to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm your host, Siri Vincent Clough, and I'm so glad you're here. This is the show where I explore heathenry through a queer lens. We will be talking about traditional witchcraft, runes, folklore, and so much more. Join us, won't you, as we journey to the ends of the Nine Realms and back. Hello, hello, and welcome back. We are back after a short mid-season break. I've had a few things happening, namely the book coming out and getting married, and so I've been needing almost every spare moment uh, from all of that madness that I could grab. I had originally wanted to keep the podcast going straight through those uh, two weeks of October, but then it came around and I decided I needed the extra space and we were halfway through the season anyway which is very good because I am so tired now. Releasing a book and planning a wedding within a week of one another is a lot of work. Who would have predicted? Anyway, I'm excited to be back with another episode, uh, another interview episode for this season. My guest today is Tomas Prower, an author, activist, and registered mortician. I knew as soon as I decided on the theme for this season that I wanted to bring Tomas on to talk about his relationship with death deities and rituals as a mortician. He's no longer um, actively doing that work, but this conversation spans the breadth of his work. Here is a short uh, bio of Tomas. Tomas Prower is a graduate of the University of California, Santa Barbara, with degrees in global socioeconomics and Latin American studies. With fluency in English, French, and Spanish, he has worked for the French government as a cultural liaison throughout South America with extended assignments in Buenos Aires, Santiago de Chile, and the Amazon jungle. Since then, he has been the External Relations Director for the American Red Cross of Nevada, LGBT Plus Programs Director for Entertainment Productions in Los Angeles, and a licensed mortuary professional in California and Nevada. Currently, Tomas resides in Palm Springs, California, as the Director of Communications for the LGBTQ Plus Center of the Coachella Valley. And now, on to the episode. Welcome back to the podcast, Tomas. Wait, welcome to the podcast. Um, for listeners out there, we had recorded a session before and then the audio was corrupted. And so we're doing another interview. So it feels like a return for me, but it is it's not great. for our listeners. <laughs> Same. I feel like I feel like this is like part two, like it's, it's happening again, but it's the first time for everyone else. Yeah. Um, all right. So Tomas... Um, you, I already gave a, a brief um, introduction of you in the uh, intro to the podcast, but um, for our listeners and in your own words, um, who are you and what is the kind of like main area of your work? Sure. Um, I'm Tomas Brower. Um, the main area of my work is usually around the world trips into deep dives of cultures and religions and spirituality of little niche genres like queerness, death in the afterlife overcoming oppression and things to come and just exploring how those things existed all over the world in spiritual practices and showing that the rest of the world isn't so different from us in a relatable tongue-in-cheek way so those are the books I'm best noted for but I think two majority of my books are around death and the afterlife with La Santa Muerte being the first one that you know broke me into the scene and then with a follow-up of sorts going around the world beyond just Santa Muerte of morbid magic which is the death and spirituality God's underworldness of around the world throughout time and how humans have tried to explain the unexplainable yes yes um I love your work and it's also um worth noting, I think, for underworld conversations that um, you were, until recently, a real-life mortician. That's right. That's right. I'm still licensed um, in Nevada and California because it's a state thing, like the bar that you have to pass. But um, yes, I used to be literally elbow deep inside the chest cavity working with death. I have seen everything 
from, you know, you watch a movie like the John Wick things and bang, bang, people fall down. They do not just fall down. They do not just fall down. Heads up, everyone. Um, I've seen, you know, and, it, you know, it's funny, but also I have seen the horrors of everything from extreme depression, murder, um, and everything else in between. And then dealing with the family left behind, um, not just the bodies themselves, of picking up pieces, helping them make very unexpected decisions about loved ones all of a sudden, and guiding them in a kind of psychopomp-ish way through the underworld process of living and dealing with grief. So I, I used to do that professionally for a while um, until very recently, which is all stories we can get into if you want yes. to. But yeah. yeah. So, okay. Now into the real interview. Um, not that this hasn't been real, um, but uh, I'm beginning every interview this season with the question, what is the underworld to you? And what is an underworld journey? Ooh, the underworld to me. I don't know. This might be, as the kids say, a spicy answer. Because I've, I've said this answer once, only once before, and I've gotten all the looks. I've gotten all like the judgment that you cannot contain. Um, but I write about books. I write about all this afterlife stuff. But I personally am not too sure an underworld exists. And suddenly, I know, I get all the faces. Like, I said that to a psychic who I didn't know was, like, an underworld medium who gave me the face, like, are you sure? You know, like, I work with them every day, which I'm sure, like, the gall she must have felt at that answer. But, uh, you know, because I don't know. I'm very skeptical of everything. And a lot of, you know, the, the opposites of duality. If there's an underworld, there's some sort of, like, overworld, what happens after death. I don't know. And I... You know, I have very strong beliefs, um, more of a reincarnation kind of energy cannot be created or destroyed, but a, a very strong belief is not the same as knowing. And I don't like to like say this or that if I don't personally know, and I don't know anyone who personally knows. So right, I, I mean, I, I think, think the real just ends and then it's just the void. That is really beautiful, actually. Um like, I, I definitely don't share that belief necessarily. I don't know what I believe. Um, but I think especially considering how much you have very physically worked with death, like, not just like conceptually, not in readings with clients, like literally worked with corpses. Like, I think that you have an interesting perspective on that and kind of like I don't know. Yeah. I, I find that to be really interesting. It's, I, I think, I think that's, that's might be part of it because you have, you know, if people who don't experience death is hidden from us, you know, I, I worked in Los Angeles for most of my mortuary career, Los Angeles and Las Vegas, you know, metropolitan cities, people are dying all the time, but you don't really see death unless it's in, you know, at some funeral. And so when people think of the afterlife and death, it's such an abstract concept that it goes immediately into the realm of imagination, immediately in the realm of mythology. It's what we can think of it. But if your day-to-day -day life is literally dealing with a human shell, you know, the cessation of life and seeing that nothing moves, that eerie stillness and the realities of death and how nothing happens, it gets a little bit harder probably for me to believe it after seeing how things can just end and what that looks like. Yeah, definitely. I think that um, there's also something interesting about thinking of a physical underworld journey. Um, so physically what happens to the corpse after death or physically what happens to us after death. And that is a very real tangible thing that, you know, is definitely hidden from us, but that we could engage with. Um, you know, through either mortuary work or attending funerals or something like that. And then I do think, just a personal belief, I do think that there is some kind of psychic journey. Um, and that can happen, actually. I This is a little bit of a spicy take. And Ooh. yes, so I think that <laughs> underworld journeys can happen while we're alive. Interesting. Interesting. In what way? In what way? So... I think that there are times in our lives when we go through severe lows and you can almost feel it physically, right? Where like everything feels really challenging. 
Um, I hate using the term ego death, Mm. but there's not really a better term for it widely recognized in English, but the idea of an ego death and of like all of your belief systems being challenged and that kind of feeling like a death of the self, like I definitely think of those as living underworld journeys. So that may be a time where um, hell or Santa Muerte is uh, really present in your life if you work with deities or other spirits. Um, And I think that that actually is probably the most tangible and important underworld journey that we actually do embark on. I know I 100% agree that kind of dark night of the soul going into and trying to come out of it, you know, that's, it's tough. And I, you know, we've all been there and it feels very dark and, you know, not everyone comes out of it. So very much. So that's, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I also just have to note, I think it's really interesting that you use the word hidden to uh, describe death Um, because I think that that's a theme that, you know, like very like death positive people or people who are involved in, you know, like mortuary or whatever, um, talk about, um, you know, that in, at least in the United States and American society, cause that's the perspective that I've read. People are very hidden from death. You know, like we don't have the days long, um, dressing of the corpse, you know, or something like that, that was common in other cultures historically, and even today. Um, but in the Norse cosmology, hell's name translates to hidden. Oh. So it's kind of this interesting thing where she's always present, but she's always hidden. Like almost to fully conceive of her is to actually die. I get, I can absolutely see that because even, 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 you know, logistically, you can't truly know death unless you are dead. Otherwise, it's just speculation. So how could you know hell if you don't go beyond the hidden and know it? That's no, that makes perfect sense. That's, that's wise. That's wise. Yeah. She's also very um, busy. I bet. (laughs) I bet. I was busy too when I was working there. Right. Like, I think that, um, it's an interesting theme that I see in a like cross mythologically, right? Where like a lot of the death gods are just, they're very busy people or very busy deities. They're like, I don't have time for your bullshit. I have so many dead people to process. <laughs> like, it's no straight up 100% true. I remember I was doing the research for morbid magic, the same thing. They would just be like, people would say, oh, they're evil or, oh, they're like unkind. And it's like, no, it's like they have super stressful jobs. They're working overtime. They're a little cranky. You know, they don't have time for your pettiness. They're not going to get involved with things. They are done with games. So, you know, they're very serious with that. So I, I, yes, around the world, that is a common theme. Yeah. Um, The first, uh, I cover hell pretty extensively in the first episode of this season. Um, so, but I'm just kind of recapping stuff because that hasn't come out yet. You haven't had the chance to hear it yet. Um, but, uh, another interesting thing about hell and I keep trying to find this, but my, uh, Norse teacher, Kari Toring has talked about it before, how hell sleeps in a bed made of pestilence. Oh, (laughs) 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 yeah, like she's this gnarled, intense goddess figure not even a go- I almost I I kind of conceive of her as like beyond goddesshood actually mm. because death also comes for the gods in Norse mythology that's true that is true yes 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 yeah so um even though this is the heathens journey podcast um we are very like multicultural friendly here um so I do just want to talk um about Santa Muerte a little bit if that's okay Oh, no, I love that. That's my, that's my thing. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. So um, what does, I know that you have worked with Santa Morte before um, and continue to. Um, what are some of your practices? If you're comfortable sharing, if you're not comfortable sharing, that's okay. We can talk about her like mythologically. 
Oh, no, I'm comfortable sharing. Um, and I think it's important to share because I, you know, a little prelude to everything. La Santa Muerte, um, especially in the Western Hemisphere, is just blowing up. I mean, her worship is becoming more and more public, which means more people are seeing her. And I, I wouldn't say culturally misappropriating her, but um, people, you know, when something gets very popular, it becomes a lot more superficial. So then she becomes more like a wish granting um, fairy godmother kind of a thing. But um, seems very, inappropriate for a, a deaf deity. It is very inappropriate, <laughs> which, leads to, which leads to some bad times for people when they get into it, which is other stories for later. But my practice, it's very traditional. It's it's working with death itself because La Santa Muerte is not dominion over death, not of the underworld. It's the personification of death itself, very similar to an artistic Grim Reaper. Um, and the thing with her is that it, how I approach it, mostly nowadays, it's less magic based and it's more friendship. It's someone who's got my back. If I'm going to go out driving to work, you know, protection, general things in life. Rarely do I do specific spells, specific working, specific intensive meditations with her because the the energy of death is a very, very intense energy. And so when I think I always pause and try to check myself lest I wreck myself and think, what is this thing that I want? Like, let's say it's a love spell. Let's say there's someone I'm laughing like, oh, look at this person. I Ooh, let's make this happen. Romance spell. Is this person worth contacting the energies of death in order to truly make this happen? And a lot of people, when they're in the throes of it, they're like, yes, you know, because, you know, I know it, I feel it, whatever kind of bull, like mental gymnastics. But I, I think to myself, no, I probably don't need the energies of death to help me with this so intensely. If it was something more intense, yes. So personally, I only work with the Santa Muerte if it's a, a true need, if it's I absolutely need this for my survival. If it's a want, and most things are usually wants, if I'm with myself, I'll probably not go to her. But we hang out. I have an altar, you know, keep the regular offerings like a friend, like a friend who'll know when I'm down. I don't always have to be like, hey, help me. A, a true friend knows when you're down. They'll reach out be like, hey, what do you need? It's that kind of relationship I have with her. That's actually pretty similar to my relationship with hell. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. So not surprising at all since I started this, like working on and writing the episodes for the season, she has been really present and she's been very like in the background pretty much since the pandemic started. Right. I mean, she lies in a bed of pestilence. Like, yeah, yeah she's, yeah, she got a big bed out <laughs> recently. <laughs> She's present right now, but, um, I don't ask her for things. I don't, you know, I, I might send prayers to her for like easeful deaths of the people in my life who are dying. Um, you know, or just like for, you know, general, like help me with change, sort of like help me understand that all things must die and like that kind of thing. Like that feels yeah. very appropriate to me, but I would never ask her for something, but sometimes she'll come up and just be like, Hey Siri, you need to stop doing this. Because <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this part of your life needs to die. It's very intense. And I resist at every turn. Yeah, it's, it's, it's true. I mean, to, to tangent off of that with La Santa Muerte, yeah, the, the scary thing about La Santa Muerte is that her, her like thing, one reason she's really popular is because she has no safety guards. Because a lot of because a lot of times people think, oh, unanswered prayers, the gods were looking out for you with your special relationship, you're asking something that would bite you in the butt, therefore it didn't manifest. Santa Muerte is like, okay, you want this that could potentially end your own life that you don't even know? Cool. Oh, you want this relationship that's going to go horrible because they are a horrific person you do not need in your life? If that's what you want, go for it. And, you know, death being death, it's less bringing about manifestations, but destroying everything that's in the way of it. And I, in prelude to my Morbid Magic book, I give a warning. Um, 
because everyone wants to work with intense deities of death because they're very strong, very powerful. But I remember one of my friends was really wanted to work with her, started working with her. And then it came about that got everything that he wanted and realized that his life was the rose tinted glass that had been off. The wife had been cheating. His life was a lie, all this stuff. So now he could rebuild his life, get a true happy relationship and go from there. But the reality was so intense, too intense for him. And he chose not to continue that reality. <laughs> and Ooh. yes, so it got very sad. But again, that's how La Santa Muerte works. Not that it's a monkey's paw thing, but that you have to have a level of self-control and know what you truly want and know that it'll probably manifest via the destruction of everything in the way. Right. Yes. Um, That feels very like if you are, you know, kind of like in alignment with in, in a very good place in your spiritual path, let's just put it that way. I don't know how else to say it. Um, Working with Santa Morte demands that you know what you want without yeah. a shadow of a doubt. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, yes. It's, 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 you've checked everything. You've reassured. You looked at all the angles. You're absolutely permanent. And then it happens and you have to be prepared for it and be prepared to build up after it because yeah. death is destruction. It takes away. It doesn't give. Yes. How do you, as a practitioner, um, kind of like get to that point of like, how do you know when it's time to actually switch from I'm exploring this to I'm activating and I want this? <laughs> um, it's, it's tricky. I mean, it's, it's, it's that life journey for a lot of people. It's just growing up in maturity um, and really life experiences and learning from losing is the best way that you do it because we all think certain things are important they become less important as we ex- grow up and experience other things. And we know where true value lies. And it's really just going through the hard times and being very honest with yourself. Um, and so the more you lie to yourself and the more you want to not see reality, even if that reality is yourself and what you truly are and not accepting your own dark sides, because a lot of what you want could be a manifestation of your own, you know, inner demons, inner darkness. You know, I want this love because I, Really, you're saying you want a lover, but really, what your inside soul is saying, I want to, I don't want to be so lonely anymore, which is a completely different thing. You know, I want, I want wealth as opposed to, I don't want to be poor anymore. I want a new job as opposed to, I don't want to work here anymore. Those are two very different things on the opposite sides. And it's truly understanding the core reasoning behind why you want something. And it took, a lot of stuff. But what fast-tracked it for me, again, is the mortuary career. Because working with so much death, people who didn't didn't know that they would be under my care when they woke up that morning, um, it puts a lot of things into perspective. And you, I learned very quickly what really matters, how precious everything is, and just, uh, yeah, again, what really matters. It, that helped me personally. Yeah, absolutely. As you were talking about how your wants could be like the inner darkness sort of coming out. It reminded me of the devil card in tarot, actually. Mm. Um, How in the traditional Rider-Waite-Smith deck, um, the devil card and the lover's card are mirrored. Yeah, they are, they are, yeah. I've always read it as like, (laughs) these two are connected and there's like a hair's breadth between them. Um, it's like, what, to what end is this desire? And sometimes the devil card is, shows up in readings and it often shows up in readings for me as like, you are unwilling to admit what you really desire. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. Like it's okay to ask for things. It's okay to ask for what you want. Um, know what you're asking for, but like, it's okay to put yourself out there. Yeah, I mean, everyone is always like, I want to know who I am, or like they boast, like, this is who I am. And it's like, you know, I give I give my heart to this person. I want to give my heart to this person. But do you even know what's truly in that heart that you're giving this other person? Have you looked into it? Do you know what you're giving other people? So, <laughs> yes, yes. Yes. 
Um, so speaking of wants and desires, I think this is an interesting time to pivot to your current book, which is Warrior Magic. Mm. Um, and it's uh, about a lot of things. It is about how, um, you know, cultures around the world, pagan cultures around the world. Um, although, you, you no, know, you do actually have like chapters. It's just like global religion. Yeah, global religion, especially because of the warrior magic and it's how, you know, the magic of the battlefield, the magic of overcoming oppression. There has been a lot of that on the rise recently. So there's a lot more modern things in it, too, mm-hmm. um, for practices. So it's it's uh, it's very unfortunately become the most timely book that I've yes. written. It's one of those things where it's just like, damn it. But on the other hand, it's like, well, you know, at least it, here's the tools here. We, it, it, it contributes somehow. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. And I will say it's very different from other, you know, works on like revolutionary magic or revolutionary spirituality. Um, first of all, in its breadth, right? You know, like a lot of other books that kind of cover the similar topic aren't covering it from so many different cultural standpoints. Um but it is actually very focused on the fight. It's focused on like, okay, you want to be an activist, you know, you gotta, you gotta fight for what you want. You gotta roll up your sleeves, um, and actually get to work. Um, and I do appreciate it, that about it. Um, so I know that you have a story over how this book came to you. Would you mind telling our readers or listeners? (laughs) Oh no! I'll, yeah, absolutely. This book, I was actually on the on the like brink of submitting something else to Llewellyn as like my follow up to Morbid Magic as my next in a Around the World series. For some reason, don't know. I was like, no, I want to write about this instead. And this was like twenty, Lord, this was like 2018, 2019, like before the world like really really changed. And this popped up because you know twenty sixteen happened and we shot off into the darkest of timelines now because of that and i remember obviously being upset you know news flash i was not happy with the election in 2016 and i you know saw all this talk about we're going to mobilization what this general strike well we're not going to let this happen you know the inauguration happened and then you know the women's march you saw all these pink hats you saw everyone going out and it was just like yes we're doing something we're going to show it and then nothing happened and then nothing happened. And then nothing happened for years. And everyone was just saying, oh, well, we'll show them in 2020. Get ready. And it's like, no, what are you talking about? There are people who cannot survive to 2017 because of this. 2018, there are many people who haven't survived. What supreme level of privilege is this where you can just wait out, you know, this whole destructive autocracy that's happening and be like, well, we'll try next time. And everyone else was very, and then, you know, 2020 happened and suddenly there was physical violence. Tiffany's glass windows were being broken into, things were happening. And if that didn't happen, George Floyd would not have gotten the measure of justice he has. But the same thing, what's happened with Brianna Taylor? What's happened with anything else? And there just wasn't any follow through. And I was upset, yes. very upset. And it looked at all the magic books and it's like, well, here's this calming spell. And I'm like, no, these protesters do not need to be calmed. They do not need to be all this stuff. You know, they need their voices expanded upon. And the whole witch debate of like, should you get involved? Should you do this? Peaceful magic, love and light only. I'm like, forget this bowl. Where is all the hexes? Where you look through history and magic and magical workers have been on the front lines of overcoming oppression. It's in the mythological texts of so many different people. And so it was just like, what happened to us? When did this generation or the generations before just believe that the moral arc of history would just bend upwards into progressiveness? And so we've just been sitting around and I want to culminate this because I know I'm going off and I can go off for another five hours. But... (laughs) um, Wait, the thing is, the thing is that from my perspective, it's we're become we became way too comfortable with being comfortable. We don't. It, it's it's much easier to watch the world burn now because we can watch it in our homes with our air conditioning on the on our giant TVs on our iPads while our air fryer is cooking our food. 
it's like, don't rock the boat because you may lose some of that. And, mm-hmm. and then we think, oh no, it's happening to them. Just, just let me keep my smartphones. Let me keep my instant coffee makers. Go away. And so we don't want to fight because we've got this modicum of comfort that we're not willing to risk really for the betterment of the greater good. And if it all, you've seen it with the mask thing too. It's like, I'm not going to slightly inconvenience myself to help the world. Oh that my God. It. Yes, <laughs> yes. It's so just, frustrating. So all of that, I was like, let me get this book out. And this book, if, if you read, if, if you read it, it is pointed. It is no holds barred. It is, look, this is the tools. These are the spells to get rid of people. These, however you want to interpret that. There's the spells to do stuff. And, and, and it's Siri right here. I have gotten so many compliments of people saying that person who wrote that Nordic Valkyrie um, spell to help dismantle the patriarchy, that was intense. That was good. And then I always, and then I always tell them, oh, and that was that was the redacted version. We sent a version that was way too spicy. That the the editors had to be like, hold back, hold back. This is a bit too intense. I was like, no, it's not. This is what we need. So we compromised. And I went back. I was like, look, they want to make some edits. Are you okay with that? And they said yes. So I was like, okay. Well, it happened. That that whole conversation. So first of all, like for listeners who are interested, um, the it's. I basically updated a Valkyrie scene from um, Burton Yall's saga, uh, where the Valkyries are like weaving the tapestry of battle using like intestines and skulls and shit. So like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was it was definitely very spicy, and a lot of the actual lyricism is like very deeply inspired by the actual words in the saga itself which kind of goes back to your point of like, we've, we've greatly reduced our like strength of word or strength of spells for comfort. Right. Um, but so I was actually, I, I was absolutely not surprised when a few days after the January 6th, um, riots, uh, at the, at Washington DC, the insurrection, that you messaged me and were like, hey, <laughs> yeah. the uh, the publishers are kind of concerned about the level of intensity of this. Maybe, <laughs> yes, <laughs> maybe we should yes, dial yes. it back. Um, yeah, and of course, as soon as you like, as soon as you messaged me that, I, like the picture of the stupid, oh my God, the like QAnon shaman like shot through oh. my brain and I was like, yeah, we're not going to have any of that. I have to make this very clear. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's true because you know I'm I'm not in the Nordic pagan you know sp- I'm in like the magical sphere, but I'm not I don't behold myself to that as my main practice. And it's a tricky line you guys have because it's it's so much of like if someone has a Nordic tattoo, it's like is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? You know, it's like oh, like is it happening? So it's a it's a hard line to walk with that. So I'm I was very happy of how well you did it and was able to be that contributing author for that section. My God. Yeah, I know we've I've contributed to I contributed to Morbid Magic as well. And when we met in person in I think like 2018, maybe. Um yeah, you were yeah, you were promoting queer magic at that time. Um uh you were like, I really want to include Norse stuff in my work and I absolutely do not want to give a platform to anyone who is a white supremacist so mm-hmm. <laughs> um yeah. yeah I feel like with that line it's you just have to be very vocal about what your belief system is right I mean like this podcast is heathenry from like a queer non-binary leftist perspective right and that's pretty obvious. Like it does what it says on the tin. Like <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. anybody who makes it through an episode, like pretty much knows that about this podcast, but um, you just have to make it so apparent right away. And here's the thing, like for as intense as the right and far right get, whenever they, as, as triggered as they become, when you say black lives matter, like, 
that's actually a really simple statement to make. Like, Black people are people. Black lives matter. Mm-hmm. End of discussion. They just do. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. I know. If that is hard for someone to say or to hear, like, that is such an intense indication of where they stand politically and, you know, thinking about justice and everything. Exactly. And they come, a lot of them are like, oh, I'm so badass. And it's like, how badass are you that some words of affirmation can harm your soul so intensely? Like, that's not badass. Right. Weak. Very simple words. Like, Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Kills me. Um, Yes. So I do think that this is a really good and important addition to what has sort of become the like canon of like revolutionary or protest like books that are on like magic and like religion and paganism that are on the market right now. Um, Because we've definitely seen a lot of that published and there are plenty of authors who are publishing, um, you know, social justice oriented pagan books before, but now it's just Mm -hmm. like, become so much more apparent why that is important it is it's it's becoming more important and with with this one too like especially like why i had you on it's because a lot of them come from very um witchcraft perspectives because i think one of the biggest ones were um hughes's um the binding of trump one the magical resistance and then david salisbury's uh witchcraft activism and they're from a very witchy standpoint which was good. But I was like, you know, there's revolutions happening around the world right now. There's there's people actually overthrowing oppressors. Like in Sri Lanka recently, they had this bad, you know, president and they they stormed the place. They they went and they got him out because they got up and they did something. And even, you know, to bring the queerness into this, you know, as a queer person, I only have rights because trans women of color threw bricks at cops. Right. I mean, if appealing to the moral sensibilities and taking the high road works, it would have worked. It would mm-hmm. have happened already. And it's time, unless the powers that be are shaken um, physically or economically, it doesn't matter. We could post all the mean things and make all the memes we want online about them. We can do all the things, but if we are not actually following up things with some economic boycotts, um, unionization or you know revolts it don't matter they'll they'll wait because they know they're gonna win yeah um it's the sense of ruthlessness that the the right and the far right have just like i don't care i'm gonna get what's mine and i think that a lot of leftists tend to be very like we're very empathic, which is a good thing, but then, (laughs) you know, we don't have that ruthless aspect of ourselves. One thing that I will say I've been trying to lean into um, lately has been um, radical hope. Mm. Like if you just believe that you're stuck where you are and that nothing is ever going to change, like, how would you ever be that person who throws the brick? You know, like how yes. would you ever get to that point of protest and action? Um, and so I guess I kind of wanted to ask you then um, what practices or um, culture, cultural practices, religious practices um, that you came across in your research, like, what was there for like hope for the after? Or are you just focused only on the fight? <laughs> no, the hope is actually the most important thing too. And I think, I think it, it's in, I forget, it's been, it's been a minute, but uh, it's because the hope is the most important thing. Cause just like you said, what, if you don't think you can win, you don't try or you won't give your hundred percent effort. You have to first and foremost believe that you can win if you're ever going to fight or be effective in it. And I remember one of the biggest examples of that that I found was actually um, a magical um, potion or ointment 
um, in sub-Saharan Africa, and I think in the Congo and parts of Zimbabwe. And it was this ancient um, tincture called dawa. Um, I forget what exactly it was made of, but you know, it's a concoction of plants, roots, different herbals, medicines. And traditionally warriors would be anointed with the dawa on their heads and it would protect them from incoming projectiles. So traditionally javelin throws, bows and arrows being shot at with something and it gave them the confidence to do it. Now the question is, did it really work? Um, and that's the question because in the 60s, um, when Che Guevara, after the successful Cuban revolution, um, he traveled to South Africa to decolonize Africa and all the colonialism that was still happening there. And when he went to the Congo, he wrote in his journals, essentially, what is, because he was a, you know, hardcore communist atheist. So he was, what is this stupid thing that they are putting on their foreheads, risking them out? These aren't bow and arrow times anymore. People are shooting at them with high powered guns. You know, and they're getting shot. You know, why are they doing this? That's so stupid. I need to educate them first. I need to teach them. But the more time he spent with them, the more he realized that he personally didn't believe in the power of Dawa, but he knew that they did. And just the belief in that magic itself, having the Dawa anointed on them, made them believe that they could. And that belief is what kept the fire of revolution going that eventually overthrew the Belgian, it stopped being the Belgian Congo anymore. And it was back into native control. And so it was very interesting to say how this magic, and it was the question, does the magic work? And if it just inspires hope, and if that hope is what's the essential fire for successful revolution, for successful overcoming oppression, then it is magical. At least that was Che Guevara's uh, final. So he never said anything about it. He promoted it. He said it was magic. He didn't believe in it, but he knew that it worked at some level, whether it was the magic or whether it was psychosomatic courage. Interesting, yeah. I also know, so you, the book um, opens with a beautiful dedication to Aries, mm -hmm. um, which I will read now. Um, this book is dedicated to Aries, God of War. May he continue to fight alongside us, shoulder to shoulder in the heat and mud of battle as we hold the line against injustice and push forward towards something more than this. And I think it's that something more than this at the end that is so critical. Yes, it, it's important because it's, you know, we a lot of people think of like specific goals, like everything has to be achieved at once. And they forget that something is slightly better than this is slightly better than this. It's a move forward. It's progress. It's a victory. And a lot of people don't celebrate little victories and things because a lot of people, you know, when you know, marriage equality first passed the Supreme Court, it was like a lot of people were against it. Like, so who cares if we get married? Because at the time, you know, it was so we can get fired for being, you know, LGBTQ plus. So who cares about marriage? And like just putting a big damper on that. And the other thing, it's it's a victory. It's a big victory. It might not be earth shattering. It's not, yes, you could possibly get fired, but this is a big victory. Celebrate it, enjoy it, empower it. And so something more than this is really literally something more than this. It doesn't have to be a definitive far away pie in the sky end goal. It can just be something better and the enjoyment of that. Right. So that was always important. Yeah. I think in my time in public policy, um, so I worked in public policy for a while and the, the field was just not for me. I was not like my personality was not suited to it. Um, I think I was a little too radical and it was hard to contain. Um, but you have to celebrate those small victories so much because it's so easy when you're slogging day in, day out to do, you know, to get this thing done, like any little victory you have to celebrate. So I was also, I was in climate change policy, mm. like the, the most uphill battle. Environmentalists are always seen as like the crazy ones who are going to destroy mm -hmm. society if they get what they want, right? <laughs> and also yeah. because so few people are connected with the environment and so few people are really plugged in in that way, I think it's, you know, a lot easier for, you know, Republicans or even like 
moderate conservative Democrats, um, moderate conservative people in general to just be like, well, that's a problem for later. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's, that's just, that's not a problem for right now. Right now I need to get my uh, bottom dollar, like in the, in the up and up. I need to get myself back in black um, and out of the red. So that was really difficult. And like, especially so I worked in um, mining policy, fighting mines. That, let (laughs) me tell you, there are some things that are just like this huge behemoth that are really difficult to work on. We were celebrating victories like, okay, they've put off this trial until next year. Wow. They can't, you know, like they can't um, start digging in the mine until next year, probably the year after, because we're just, you know, delaying it, delaying the process, Um, which always felt so like, I just want resolution on this. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. But I, I was working with people who were, you know, I'm, clearly still young if you can hear my voice like I'm in my mid-30s um but I was working with people who had worked on the same mining issue the same fighting the same mine for 20 years oh if you're getting ready for that battle you have to celebrate the like small like oh I've delayed the trial until next year victories that don't even feel like a victory. Like it's hard to even tell people that are supporters of yours, like why that's such a big deal, you know? Like, oh, we we delayed it. Like it's it's great. And they're just like, but when is it done? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's really important to have that hope, something better than this, something, something building. It's true, it's true. Yeah. I also think it's interesting. I just want to remark that um, thinking about activism and warrior magic specifically, coming from a person who has a deep understanding of death, like in a physical understanding of death, like, of course, you're not afraid to go there. You've seen it. I have... I have seen it and I'm, I'm, I've come to terms with my mortality. There's times where it's just like, oh, you know, it's, if I'm scared, it's really like, I'm scared of how I would die. Like, I don't want to be painful. I don't want to be that. But um, no, I don't know what's at the other side and who knows, you know, it could be better. It could be worse. It could be the same. I don't know, but I don't, I don't want to paralyze myself into fearing what can ever be known. Right. The hidden Death is hidden. Yes. Yes. But I think that also may be why oh, I'm making connections right now. Oh, I'm, I'm positing. It's happening live. I'm positing theses. I'm positing theories. <laughs> but I'm thinking about, um, you know, other revolutions, you know, in the past. Um, like, we are well past the point where ancestors would have risen up. Oh my God. Yes. It's, it's, it's insane. And it's, it's, it's weird how, you know, I think I said in the book, it's like, we're, we're in this boiling pot, but you know, until the water starts boiling, that water is warm and we're comfortable. And it's like, Ooh, that is fine. Oh, it's a little, it's one degree hotter. Okay. That's fine. Oh, okay. Now it's a hot tub. Okay. And it, it, once it starts burning, then people are like, oh, 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 now we have to get out. Now it's affecting us. And I personally, uh, from like all the world stuff I've learned, it's, I think the biggest difference this time is really that there's a middle class. In ancient times, there was just the haves and the have nots. And so you have people who have nothing and you have people who are everything and they butt against each other. So it's, uh oh, where else are we going to get it from? Now we have this weird situation called the middle class where you don't really have enough to truly thrive, but you have enough to survive. And right. so there's always the threat from the upper class saying, oh, don't rock the boat or you can go down lower because now there's a lower to go to. And oh, those people below you, they can't grab us. That's too high to step on. They're going to get you. So mm-hmm. you better fight them. We'll help you. So it's this weird situation like that now. My idea, Spark, is that because so few people have 
access to and understand, you know, death in a personal way that we are less willing to risk it? It's, it's true. I mean, there's so many different, again, it's just the fantasy of everything. And so you don't know, you know what you have here, but you don't really know the other side mm-hmm. as you know, the hidden. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot easier to say, Oh, I have all this. Let's hold on to it as desperately as we can. Cause I don't know what's happening on the other side. It's like, well, if you knew it was pretty good, you'd fight for it more. And the same thing too. I mean, you know, that it can go extreme the other way with fanaticism. Like, Hey, you know, when you die, you get all these magical things in heaven. So you better fight for the cause. Right. It's, it's the opposite end of that. Yeah. Um, my spouse has a very good way of phrasing this. Um, they say that there's a perception that all many Americans have um, that, you know, you are one lucky strike away from being the next millionaire. But... You have so much more in common with the like unhoused population than you do with like Jeff Bezos. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, I, I, I don't understand it. It's just this belief, perhaps just an in- unwillingness to accept how low middle class actually is because it's not middle class it's middle between rich and poor but it's way closer to the poor spectrum than it is to the wealthy spectrum but you know they still think oh well i'll pass these laws because someday i'll be rich someday that'll be me and i don't want to bog anything down that'll someday happen to me and like it like you know it was perfectly said you could People think that people think it's more likely to win the lottery than it is to suddenly lose their house in like a missed payment of rent or losing your job. Right. That doesn't happen to me, but I can win the lottery this week. It's like, whoa, what what reality are you living in? Right. (laughs) And I think to a certain extent, it's comforting to people, right? Very comforting, yes. Of like, it's this very comforting lie that is like, okay, like I'm secure. Like I'll always be secure because I'm currently secure. And... That's just, unfortunately, not, not how it is. And I mean, I'm not saying that to be like, everybody needs to be a down downer and like really stressed out about their financial situations or really, you know, like everybody needs to be focused on this so much, but really like once you realize that, like you can, you can make decisions in your activism or you can make like relationships with people that are truly revolutionary, right? So like, you know, there are just, yeah, there are just so many possibilities that kind of open up when you lose even a little bit of that connection to that like upper, like class, (laughs) wealthy um, identity. It's, it's true. And I think it does tie back around to, you know, the beginning and, you know, talking about, you know, the darkness within ourselves and not really wanting to see it. It's not willing, wanting to accept ourselves as not wealthy or as not, not even middle class, you know, there's, there's, there's even tiers of lower middle class, upper middle class, like it's it so weird, but not willing to accept, okay, I have the bare minimum to survive. And that existence is not okay. I deserve better. I can have better, but these oppositional forces are in my way. I am willing to do something about it. I am willing to move and shake. Cause you know, I forget who says this, but it was so true. It says, you know, people who stand, sit still don't feel their chains. It's the people who are moving that feel the chains around them. Cause that's when they start jangling. So yep. if you don't move and you're comfortable, you don't notice your chains. Yeah. It's, really intense. And I feel like that in another way is its own underworld journey, right? You're like letting go of that ego attachment to, oh, but, but I'll be an oppressor someday, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like I'll be one of them someday. So I need to not rock the boat now, like let go of that. And you get to confront all of this other shit. It's like, 
you know, white people doing the like, okay, like I need to break down my own internalized like racism. Mm-hmm. I need to like uh, men working on breaking down their internal like internal like misogyny, even if they say that they don't believe that women are less than men. It's like all of this stuff kind of opens up as this really rich thing that you now need to dig your teeth, sink your teeth into once you have let go of that attachment of like, I am more like my oppressors than I am like the other oppressed people around me. Absolutely. And I I think it starts with just listening to others and taking it seriously because we're all, so so many of us are so damn sure of what we know and so damn sure that we're right about ourselves. But really like, you know, you can't fully ever see yourself. You need someone else to see you. I mean, hell, you need a mirror to even see what you look like. You know, you need that outside (laughs) perspective to get that 360 view and say, no, no, this shirt is that you're wearing is actually on backwards and looks ridiculous. You don't know you're looking like that, but that is how you're coming across. Let me fix this for you. Yes, you will have to take your shirt off for a while. Yes, who knows, it might be uncomfortable, but whatever, but we're going to fix this, okay? You don't know if <laughs> you don't ever notice it. Yeah, I think that that's a thing that I really appreciate about um, death deities, death related spirits. Um, and I mean, the Morgan, uh, isn't a part of my practice, although I know several people who love and work with the Morgan very frequently, you know, she is like battlefield Oh my God. energy, yes. you know, like that, not just death battlefield. <laughs> um, and I think that that is the, the major benefit of working with those kinds of deities is that they will hold up that mirror. I mean, I know that in my own relationship with hell, um, like she doesn't take bullshit. She's just like, this is how it is. And I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I, and I, I love that. I love that. And it, again, it's a common theme without all these, all these underworld and death deities. It's just, they do not have time for your bowl. They're going to tell you, this is how it is. This is what's happening. This is how you're going to fix it. No, I am not wrong. No, you will not do it this way. This is what's happening. This is how you fix it. Are you going to do it? And it's like, well, are you? Yeah. It's the, it's the, like, I am the ultimate eventuality, right? Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. I, I know you can take a shortcut and listen to me or <laughs> you can do all that other work. It's, um, it's so that being said, I feel like we're kind of talking up these death deities is like really difficult to work with and potentially scaring people away from like all of this crazy change in their life that is available to them. Um, um, so you can uh, take this question for Santa Morte specifically or for, you know, other death underworld deities um, generally, but how would you recommend people prepare for this kind of working relationship? Um, the I, same thing, whether it's Santa Muerte or any real true partnership or relationship with any underworld chthonic being, I would say you have to be okay with your own mortality first, because it is the height, height of hypocrisy to want to work with death, the magic of death. But yet you, it's like, okay, let's, let's, let's plan for your funeral. Let's examine what's going to happen. It's la, 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 la. That makes me uncomfortable. But that makes you uncomfortable. Want to work with death? But you don't want to like, it makes you uncomfortable when you talk about it any other way that's not inside of the pentagram circle you drew on your floor. No, you have to accept it everywhere. So it's really just accepting your own mortality and accepting that all things pass, the ephemerality of the world, nothing really lasts. And that's not in a sad boo-hoo way, but in a, it makes everything more beautiful when you realize it's not permanent. Mm-hmm. Um, you take advantage of it. You take it. Life becomes that much more special because every sip is that much sweeter of it. Um, but you have to be okay with it. You cannot be scared of death. You cannot be uncomfortable with it and work with it truly. It's like having a friend, but being scared of your friend the whole time. That's not a friendship. No, that's not a friendship at all. So it's, you have to be comfortable with mortality and understanding that before you embark on anything. Number one. Yes. And I mean, that's, that's no small ask, right? <laughs> um, 
So I think that's the beauty, particularly of like polytheism, um, that you can have support from other spirits, other deities while you are undertaking this huge thing. So like, for example, as I've been on my recent living underworld journey, um, I've had a very nice helping hand from Frigga, who is Mm -hmm. a goddess of, um, best known as Odin's wife, but um, goddess of hearth, goddess of home. Um, And more importantly than that, even, she's like the goddess of like relationships, not just Mm -hmm. amorous relationships, but she sort of like helps hold people together in a really profound way. But she's also a very silent goddess. She doesn't say anything unless it's 100% true. She holds the keys of the secrets of the universe, but she doesn't, she doesn't unlock that door too often. Um, which is just a wonderful, I, I tend to work with the I hidden goddesses, I guess. <laughs> I Every, tend to work with the ones that are like, Hal is always hidden and very busy and Frigga is like, has all of this wisdom, but you know, doesn't know, like only dispenses that wisdom when you're ready for it. Mm-hmm. Um, So, yeah, I would say that that would also be if you're wanting to truly work with these more intense deities, you know, find other forms of support. And they don't have to be other deities either. Like um, it could be establishing a daily meditation practice, um, you know, to calm the mind and help yourself become more aware of mortality and come to terms with mortality Um, just from being less activated all the time yes 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 and it doesn't always have to be so dark too i mean just because a lot of times we live life you know time is the most precious thing we have and we don't know how much of it we have but you know we just live our life on such autopilot like i wake up i do this get ready for work do work do my after work thing relax make food go shopping sleep when i can you know we're on such autopilot mode that we don't truly enjoy the life we're just going through it and one simple thing I always start with when everyone like asks for advice, we're like, how do I do, you know, how do I do this? How do I pay attention? I think I'm paying attention. I always say, you know, every time, every time you pass a threshold, whether it's a new room, whether it's going outside, whether it's stepping something into a car, out of a car, purposely do it with your left foot and it will check. It breaks you out of your autopilot for the entire day because you have to notice how you're moving, where you are, when you're entering a new place. And it's just, it's very simple. It's, it's not that simple if you actually do it. But if you <laughs> if you do it for a whole day, you realize how much on autopilot you're just floating through it. And just the awareness of the present makes you appreciate life. And really being connected with death brings the appreciation of life to it. And the more you appreciate life, the more you start to understand death. And it's, it, you know, everything's connected. And I think the more you appreciate life, the more you're willing to fight for something better. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, yeah, yeah. I'm going to try that left foot. Um, I really love that. A lot of um, folklore uh, associates death or the devil or all of this stuff with the left side. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll have to try that and see what comes up. It's, it's interesting. The first time I did it, it's like that, you know, the very new age belief of if you, when you realize, pay attention to your thoughts, you realize how many negative things you say a day. It's like the physical version of that. You realize, oh, I'm moving on autopilot. So mm-hmm. it's, it's magical. If you do it, it's magical. I'll probably have to like write it on my left hand <laughs> so that I have like a visual reminder that like, oh, you're supposed to do this thing. Yeah. And even saying that, that's very like, that is how on autopilot I can be sometimes. So no, same. So can us all. So can us all. So what is next for you? I've got a stack of three books on my desk right now that you've mm-hmm. written. Hey. I, I don't own Santa Morte, um, unfortunately. Uh, but what is coming up for you? Do you have anything in the works? Um, I also know that you're kind of trying something new right now, career-wise. So I am. I am. Um, There is something in the works. It's not as full throttle as I usually do it because I've made a big change. Um, I've recently moved um, to a new city, to Palm Springs, um, which which is stories for another time. 
but um, it's, yeah, and I've become a more intensive, I'm a director of the LGBT Center here, so I'm, you know, trying to walk my talk really at the Warrior Magic Book and do the activism, um, help our queer community throughout Palm Springs, the entire Coachella Valley, which has everything from the whole spectrum of life of super wealthy gay retirees who have all this money and time and money to burn to, you know, undocumented people working the fields who are scared of, you know, being pulled over for anything. So in just helping that. So a lot of my time is focused on that than writing more than usual, but there's always stuff happening. Um, Lots of virtual events coming up, lots of, lots of talks, lots of speaking events, but writing is a little bit not as full throttle right now because of that. Yeah. Awesome. And the first time we talked, I, I asked for the link to the organization that you work for. So I can yes, that. share that if you happen to be in Palm Springs, um, that's a great opportunity for local organizing and to get activated. Um, I'll share some other links um, of just organizations that I know that would be really good for folks to connect to as well. Nice. Nice. Yeah. I mean, it's, is, is a lot to do here, especially, you know, with the queer community, because, you know, it, it's a joke, but it's basically true. Half the half the city is is gay or LGBTQ of some sort. We have all the vacations for all the people coming to be wild. But also we have uh, we're a big dot of blue in a very red county. And, yes. we, you know, politically, we are with the redistricting of the loss of the House of California. Our district has been redrawn. So we used to be in a very blue safe area. We are now a very blue contender in a traditionally safe red area. So now that guy, the, um, the red, <laughs> very safe person, is a little worried this midterm election. Because well, let's give him something to worry about. We're, we're working on it ground level. We're making it happen. We're making it happen. So, again, real world practice right now. That's the focus. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Tomas, for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having a second conversation with me. Um, I think that uh, this one is going to be, um, people are going to be really digging this one. So thank you so much for your time. I'm glad. Yeah, just I'm glad it hopes, inspires people to keep up the hope and, you know, do something and move. Even if it's something small, it all amounts up. Those little victories, they matter. They do. Thank you so much for listening to the Heathen's Journey podcast. I'm so honored to share these practices, conversations, and thoughts with you. If you would like to support this podcast, please consider supporting it on Patreon. The Patreon is designed as a learning and sharing space for fellow inclusive heathens to grow their practices. Every month we have a book club meeting, I share research notes, and episodes without the ads. If you would like to join, you can do so at patreon.com slash heathensjourneypod. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, keep it weird. Thank you.